Listen, there's a reason the ultra-wealthy have been investing in fine wine for centuries. Historically stable returns and a lack of volatility make it stand out compared to traditional assets, especially during a downturn. But now you can invest alongside with them with Vint. Vint is an SEC-qualified investment platform that offers shares of the most sought-after wines in the world. So join the thousands of investors diversifying with fine wine and spirits. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VINT.co. Welcome to This is Civity Radio Show. I am Gina Bellaria. Civity helps people in communities build a culture of respect and empathy across difference, and our interviews explore how people across the country and world are doing this in their communities. Today, we welcome Tom Williams, an attorney with Stoll Keenan Ogden out of Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, and a leader of the Compassionate Louisville effort. He's also a board member of the Charter for Compassion, and Civity knows Tom as a passionate, action-oriented community organizer who's been an indispensable partner in connecting Civity with like-minded leaders in Louisville. So, Tom, we are thrilled to have you here today. Thank you, Gina. So first, I'd like to talk to you about uh, the bridging work you're doing in Louisville. How in the world did you come to this space where you are such an integral part of the bridging work happening in Louisville? That's a very good question. I've, I've um, been an attorney here in Louisville since 1990, and over the last 10 or 15 years, experienced some personal transformation and um have been kind of following the thread of uh, healing in my personal life as it led out into the community. So, you know, that started with a community project around bringing restorative justice to juvenile courts, which is really more of a community building way to do justice. And then it led to the compassionate city effort. Um, and, and, and as part of that, I've been become very interested in the idea of uh, connecting. Um, when I was board chair of Leadership Louisville, the Leadership Louisville program did what was called the Connector Project, which was built from Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point. And he talked about connecting as a form of leadership. And so our city actually developed a list of the top 100 connectors in town. And um, and I think really from there, I, I developed a very keen interest on the power of relationships and ecosystems and networks, which led to a lot of connections in the community around people who are trying to to build uh, relationships across difference. Why do you think the idea of connectivity and and restorative justice spoke to you so much? Uh, It's out there, people hear about it, and yet it really spoke to you. Why do you think that is? Well, the reason is um, I really... experienced a very powerful personal healing. Um, It spent kind of the first half of my life trying to accomplish some goals, and I had reached a lot of the goals. And as Thomas Merton would say, sometimes you um, realize that your ladder is on the wrong wall. Um, And so during that time frame, uh, a part of me died off and something new was reborn. And so um, because I had a personal experience of of, um, you know, my woundedness and vulnerability creating a personal transformation. I knew it was possible for other people. And really, I I felt like I received this great love from the universe and, and wanted to return it to other people. So that, that was really what led me to get involved in restorative justices that I wanted other people to be able to experience the type of, um, 
love and healing that I had experienced. I thank you so much for sharing that. It's so interesting when uh, when co-founders of Civity Malka and Palma and I talk about what brought us to this work. We all uh, we all talk about how when we were very young we were I mean we were very well loved but also different or othered uh, or you know slightly different or out of step with those around us and so always thinking about being othered and wanting to bring other people in and not necessarily in a bad or evil way but just just seeing the world a little differently and um, and yet and then also I love your story because there are a lot of people out there who move through life and and um, are going for goals and then come to a point where like oh you know, and, and I, obviously we don't have to talk about your experience and what that was but that you had the experience and 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 realized your ladder was on the wrong wall which I love that analogy and then nudged over and I love when that happens as well when people take a look at the community around them. And I think just coming to this work and, and committing to it is, um, to me, very, very beautiful. And I, I, love, I love meeting people in the community who have, who have come to this kind of work. Um, so what, in Louisville, what was, when you started moving into the bridging work and moving into this uh, restorative justice and restorative connectivity work, what was there a main goal or something you saw that you're like, I want to tackle that first, or this is where we need to focus? Is there something specific you really wanted to to get at as you first started this work? You know, not not really. I mean, my approach was to kind of work with whatever showed up, and and really, yeah. as opposed to setting an agenda, I tried to pay attention to what was co-arising, kind of synchronicities, things that were coming up at the same time, and then trying to, um, you know, weave those things together in, in both being kind of responsive to what shows up in my life and, um, and, and really trying to create a safe space where people can connect. You know, the world's so politicized right now that, that there's not, in, in my view, enough places where people can can be vulnerable and and speak their deeper truths and not live from just a surface role. Yeah. Yeah, in fact there's some recent research out I believe it's from Pew that says that people really desire this they desire this connection. They're they're fr they're just as frustrated and yet I think so many people out there either don't know how to make this connection or don't know what spaces are out there. Um, but there's definitely a need and a desire for it. Now, you've been doing this bridging work for a while. What has been happening in Louisville? What are some of the, the moments or examples or, or uh, areas you've, been, you've seen success in or you've seen some positive uh, uh, webs forming in your work? Yeah, you know, there's there's really a, a number of different groups that are talking across difference right now. So it's not just one particular group that's leading the effort. And the wonderful thing about Civity was it was really a good way to get a lot of those groups that are working in this space together. And then the folks at Civity are very uh, supportive in their approach as opposed to top down and, and agenda driven. Um, so there's there's a lot of initiatives going on. One kind of low-hanging fruit from the mayor's office point of view was a volunteer week. Mayor Fisher took over in 2010. There was a volunteer week that had about 50,000 to 60,000 volunteers. And this past year, in 2019, there was over 250,000 people who volunteered in one week. And, and a lot of people had never really given back to the community or experienced 
the relationships that can form when you volunteer or experience the joy of sharing and having deeper purpose. And so that's been, at least in compassionate Louisville terms, what we've considered to be an anchor project, a, a little more difficult project or a lot more difficult project that, that the mayor's office has put out is called Lean Into Louisville. And and that's, you know, Louisville is a northernmost southern city, um, but a, a southern city at, at heart. And we had we have um, had historically had redlining and um, planned segregation. And so Lean Into Louisville is about creating conversations where uh, people can talk across difference. And again, Civity was a part of that in leading kind of the conversation before the conversation, the conversation developing the relationship before, uh, before the deeper, harder conversations. And it was seeded into Metro government. So the head of Lean Into Louisville is having civity type conversations with her workforce. And some of the major employers in town have been involved with it and some of the smaller employers in town and even employers like my, you know, 140 attorney law firm have been having civity conversations to really focus on the importance of, um, of building the connection and seeing that conversation is is not doing nothing. It's actually a form of action. It's the it's what needs to happen before the deeper, more powerful actions can take place. So those those are a few of the examples. We've not been so good at kind of tracking all the great things that have happened, and and, and we've had a lot of um, beautiful connective kind of work. One that comes to mind is there was uh, vandalism of our uh, mosque near the river in Louisville. And this was a couple of years ago, and it was, you know, uh, racist types of um, uh, graffiti that were put up. And the mayor and the leaders of the mosque um, called for a community cleanup and called for essentially restorative justice and accountability for the person involved with the vandalism. And it ended up that a, a thousand people showed up in this little mosque, and they created stations where people could do the cleanup. And so you know, this particular individual's goal was to divide the community, but the actual end result because of the connectivity in our community was that it drove people to the mosque who had never really been there, and it, and it created more connections. It was so uh, moving to one of the members of the mosque that he wrote an op-ed piece that ran in the New York Times in Pakistan that he was impressed with how people in Louisville responded and that he had hoped people in Pakistan would respond as the same way to, you know, expressions of hatred. So, so it's been, um, you know, creating compassion as a community value was something our mayor did um, really on the terms of that the city should be a platform where everybody can flourish and in connection and knowing each other is critical to that. And part of our mayor's talking point in this regard is that cities need what he calls social muscle um, to avoid incidents like Ferguson in some of the riots in other cities, people need to know each other from different walks and sides of the community. And, um, and Louisville has been um, very intentional about that in a lot of spaces and has done some nice work in that regard. And we have compassion deserts and we have crime issues and murder rates that are too high and, and a lot of problems. Sure. You know, what you just said there, it, it takes... It's a process, of course, of developing intentionality and connections across difference and weaving that that social fabric or social muscle as, as you're talking about. 
And, and so, of course, you know, nothing's a silver bullet, but the idea of being intentional, and, and I want to go back to something you said a little bit early in that, in that response. You talked about the idea that conversation is action, and I think there's, there's so much reframing work that needs to happen in this type of work. Often we, we at Civity find that, or at least during, it's, it's a little better now, but in the beginning, oh, that's touchy-feely, what we wouldn't want to do that, you know, when really those foundational, it's foundational, the idea of conversation, the idea of knowing someone across difference, of building trust before you do the work so that you can have some commonality. And it's, I think there's an awareness now of... Uh, the fact, or there's a growing awareness that that's becoming more important, especially when we, uh, for lack of a better way of saying this, people like you who are attorneys who are working in spaces that might not necessarily um, stop to do the quote touchy-feely work, who are recognizing the value and necessity of conversation as action. And I think as that as that awareness and uh, ownership grows, then this work will hopefully have greater impacts. And so, uh, yeah, I, just, I think that was a really interesting um, and important point that you made about trying to help people understand that conversation is action. Um, and, and of course, it's not going to be a full solution, but we can see that you're having successes in the fact that people want to support those who are harmed at the mosque uh, and 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 yet there are still I, I really also love the way you phrased compassion deserts where we need to get in there and sort of grow that or, or um, nurture those areas and I think people who are in this space you see a lot of different viewpoints some are um, really want to only look at big systems which I think is very important you have to look at systems and the violence that systems create um, and then you have a group of people that, you know, kind of want to do things and really get frustrated with conversation. I'm tired of talking. I don't want to talk about it anymore. And I think the realization that has come to me from being in this space for, you know, 10 plus years and from working with folks like Civity is that often nothing can happen until the relationships are formed, until the networks are formed, and that, you know, calling it just talking is really not doing justice to the importance of, of building the social infrastructure. And like I said, I really like Mayer's language around social muscle um, and, and, and being intentional around, I think, what they would call bridging social capital. So social capital, social connections outside of your particular group with other groups. Um, and, and I think part of the benefit of Louisville is we've had a very rich interfaith history, and we have a, 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 a group called the Festival of Faith that's been hosted here for 20-plus years and has been called by Richard Rohr, who's a famous Franciscan. It's been called the Sundance Ooh. of the Sacred. So Louisville has been doing a lot of intentional bridge, bridging social capital for a number of years, and I think from the mayor's standpoint, it's hard to measure what doesn't happen, but you know the fact that we've not had some of the incidents that some other communities have had is a sign that these things are effective and these things are are really critically important. It's all important. It's, I mean, me saying that the conversation is action and that's important is not saying that changing systems isn't important or that doing specific actions to help people or to build community aren't important. But, you know, minimizing the importance of, of, of you know, my, I like Malka's comment of micro-inclusions, you know, minimizing that importance is not helpful because it's 
kind of like the soil that it's all built on. Right, exactly. And and I think and also th- that's an important thing to name and be deliberate about as well. This isn't the only thing. This is part of everything. This is part of the larger process which engages all kinds of things, systems, etc. And and uh, and also naming that is so important. And also and 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 you brought up another point that I think is very important to sort of illuminate a little bit further, the idea of people sometimes getting frustrated by the quote, just talking, without acknowledging or recognizing its foundational importance. But that can happen, um, in, and I, you know, the South has problems, you know, the history of slavery, et cetera, but it doesn't mean that places like California don't have those same issues we do. They're just, they, they uh, manifest in different ways. And so I think marginalized communities in particular can sometimes get frustrated, like, my God, we've been dealing this with this for generations. Can we just move forward? And the, But there's an educational component that needs to happen on both sides, or even a, a relationship-building component that needs to happen. Um, and I'm wondering how uh, whether you've had those sorts of interactions and how you balance maybe the frustration and urgency that some groups might feel with the need to build the relationships or take a breath and, and build that foundation. I'm wondering if, if you have any insights into how you've approached that. Yeah, we've really not approached it um, in a systematic way. It's been more in terms of just um, raising the conversation. I, I, you know, the one group that I was involved with, Compassionate Louisville, we dealt with it and by by one uh, ascribing a value of being universally positive so we were by design not against anything and and we didn't preclude people from being against anything but if you wanted to come together um, we were going to be a safe space where you could come together Um, and then the flip side was we made compassion the fundamental value and would tell people that, you know, we're not working for the mayor, we're working for compassion. We'd like you to come to work for compassion as well, because, you know, compassion contain, you know, emphasizes its empathy and action, and it's about our interconnectedness. And I heard from somebody that, you know, if you, like any spiritual value kind of contains all of the spiritual values. So if you, you could pick forgiveness, because forgiveness has compassion and truth telling and um, other virtues in it. They're all kind of holograms for each other, but pick one and be consistent with it. So, you know, the the way we've tried to weave this in in our community is by uh, ascribing a community value to compassion, which has meant at times that the newspapers will run stories to say, does this happen in a compassionate city? Which a lot of folks would say, are you upset about that? And I'd say, absolutely not, because we didn't aspire to be anything as a city before except the city. Now, you know, the tension between where we are and where we want to be is where new things can happen. So I I think to to answer your question, the groups I've been part of have really been very intentional about trying to create safe spaces where people could kind of express their authentic self and that we've ascribed to a value which, which, you know, really ask something of you. Um, You know, I'm Catholic and I'm male, so I can speak to this, but I heard somebody once say that, you know, it's maybe easy for a, easy in the, in one sense for a priest to be against abortion because he can't get married and he can't have kids. Um, and not that you should, should not be, I'm not ascribing one way or the other about abortion, but, but sure, compassion sure. is a virtue that asks something of me every day. And, and, 
and the theory is that, and what we've experienced is that it's a it's a gen, generative virtue that will be attractors of positive things like civity. I mean, civity. Part of why we were able to attract civity to Louisville was um, because of our community commitment to compassion. Right. And the concept you illuminate there, at least in, in my hearing, is the idea that un- until you've walked in someone else's shoes, you're not going to understand sort of the complexities around whatever decisions or the complexities around whatever feelings or emotions. And to, to for all of us to acknowledge that, you know, we come from specific spaces and may have specific opinions, whatever those might be. But And I was, again, without endorsing or supporting or anything like that, uh, Mayor Pete, one of the Democratic presidential candidates, was recently asked about late-term abortions. And, and you may have heard this response, but he basically reframed it and said, look, I can't say one way or the other, but if a person is having a late-term abortion, and I, I don't mean to get into abortion, that's not the point, but this is a person who probably was expecting to carry their child to term and now has a really hard decision to make. Whatever that decision is, it's going to be hard for me as a woman who's never been pregnant and or maybe you know to understand or fully to fully understand that decision and we can still all have our opinions about it uh, but but that that it's difficult to understand all of the complexities and until we start getting to know each other and really listening um, and so I think that that's a point worth illuminating whatever the issue is and uh, and without supporting or or uh, not supporting an issue yeah well in a, in a similar vein we Hosted a um, a political Jeffersonian dinner here in in Louisville um, with some other at the same time some other cities did just having that conversation a, a, across difference in the political divide and 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 in there some of the elected officials that we invited to the conversation said that you know money will flow to them if they're on the fringe or on the edge of an issue but that money has not historically been flowing to people who want to work across difference and who maybe recognize that they only have a percentage of the truth. And so, I, you know, I think we've been seeing some calls for some structural uh, changes in, in that regard too, and how some of the systems that we've created have really um, polarized our community. Yes, absolutely. And the important, and the importance of finding that middle. And I, I think we've found that as well is that, Funders just haven't been thinking about the middle until very recently. And, and, and when you actually survey people, so many people actually support, uh, you know, for, to, to pull up another controversial topic, you know, you, you, you pull NRA members and a huge percentage of NRA members, you know, I don't want you to take away my guns, but I believe in reasonable, you know, limitations so that we can keep everybody safe. Uh, you know, when you have the populace actually being able to find reasonable common sense agreement on things and yet still we're in very polarized spaces i it's it is nice to see that people are being intentional about saying hey we need more support inside this middle space so that we can work this stuff out and and we can build these relationships that are going to help make our community stronger uh, together well, well and one one other thing that comes to mind where civity has been really a, a huge help that was somewhat of a surprise is is how um, businesses have introduced civity into their day-to-day operations. I mean, every company has a diversity and inclusion policy, and they work very hard to have a diverse workforce, but very few give their employees any tools to actually talk to somebody that's different from them or create any spaces where that is permissible to, to build the relationships across difference. And, you know, we seeded it 
with some HR leaders and diversity leaders in Louisville fully expecting to hear people say, well, we're already doing this. But what we found is that they weren't getting this kind of training or having these types of tools. So Civity has worked both in the public arena and the community space, but we've been really surprised about how how fully it's been embraced within the, the business sector, both you know in our metro uh, government, but in private business and nonprofit business and churches. You know, anytime you're trying to build out something, if you can have redundancies, it's good. I mean, if people can have these types of conversations in community spaces, that's great. If their kids can be having it at school and talk about it at home, that's helpful. And then, you know, if they can get it at the workforce, you know, maybe it demysticizes people's difference and, and creates encouragement because, you know, we as human beings like to copy each other. And, and I think what they talk about in terms of compassion is that, you know, they say violence can be contagious, but they also have shown that compassion is contagious. And, you know, these types of practices, if we put them into use, will start to grow and spread. Absolutely. And as I mentioned earlier, I think up until recently, people have said, yeah, yeah, that all sounds good, but it's so nebulous. And and I think what Civity does is provides a structure, a pathway. Hey, you can do these very specific things to do this. Oh, that's something we can all hold on to. Okay, I can take this into my workspace, my community space, and actually put people through the paces in a way that helps build this. And I, I also love your point about making it a, a structural part of the fabric. I'm also a college professor, and uh, in my I teach introduction to mass communication. And so I think in in that space, when you're looking at sort of the mass communication messaging that we're all getting, uh, I really provide opportunities for my students to engage with each other across their differences and to pay attention to what they're seeing on screen and whether or not they see themselves reflected in that. Um, and so we had a very powerful moment a couple of weeks ago. We were looking at the history of TV, and I let them choose the clips they want to do. I give them each a decade. And so uh, one group in the 50s chose, or the 60s chose um, a clip from the Honeymooners, and they saw the an engagement between a married couple, which was a little uncomfortable from our current perspective. And then uh, the group from the 70s chose a clip from the Mary Tyler Moore show, where uh, Mary Tyler Moore is on set with her co-host, and he keeps interrupting her, and she finally says, shut up, Ted. And so I was able to say to my students, you know, hey, Mary Tyler Moore as an actor was given a seat at the table or fought for a seat at the table. And so her perspective was acknowledged and then it appeared in a show. I said, which you wouldn't have seen in earlier decades. And, and the idea of, oh, once we get together at the table and are able to talk about our experiences and share, it's not that anyone was trying to exclude, it's just that there was, oh, I had no idea, you know, okay, yeah. And so this idea of it occurring to us or when we listen, we can have a broader perspective. To me, I, again, you mentioned in school, so I'm hoping that my students can take that out and make room for each other at the table as they grow into the spaces where they become the leaders of their communities and their workplaces. Yeah, and, and I really see it as a practice. Here in Louisville, there's a number of groups that are teaching meditation, and I'm more and more surprised about people I meet who have gone through the meditation classes and now have a meditation practice. And, and I think framing it that way helps it be seen as something that's not a one and done or it's not a one-time project. It's a kind of a way of life to be inclusive and connecting across um, all kinds of differences. 
Yes, it, it, absolutely. And and I think the idea of the practice, the idea of this isn't just something you're going to do and then you've got it. This is the this is something that just becomes as if you wake up and brush your teeth every day. You do this every day. And hopefully the, the civity work, because it makes it so actionable, hopefully can, can keep infusing into communities. Um, I'm curious, what are, and, and again, you've touched on this a little bit, what are some of the maybe challenges you've had in doing some of this bridging work? And I know you, you have touched on this, but is there anything specific that comes to mind? Uh, are there an anecdote or a situation where it's like, oh, this is, this is something we need to sort of tease out a little bit more? Well, the, the race issue um, in Louisville, like a lot of Southern cities is a, is a really a very big issue. And there's a local um, professor uh, writer who's been doing a talk on redlining in Louisville. And it's really, you know, the African-American community has talked about it being uh, about segregation being intentional and, and, and the violence that they've been subjected to under the systems. But until he was able to put, put it up in pictures and show it and pull the records and show how really, you know, our, our communities were essentially designed by people who had, what we would call today a kind of a white supremacist attitude, not that they were seen that way at the time or that had that intention in their heart. And so, you know, this, this lean into Louisville initiative that our mayor has been uh, spearheading along with a woman named Kelly Watson has really um, brought to the fore um, the made the major challenges that we face here in Louisville. And as we talk about compassion now in Louisville, it's become clear that, you know, compassion without equity is not compassion. And so that, that you know, continues to be um, the major issue and a number of different uh, groups are working at it and we've got a long way to go. I mean, apparently the cities used to be designed with, um, you know, kind of breaks between the downtown center and the predominantly um, poor African-American communities. And we have what's called the Ninth Street Divide in Louisville, where there's two two ways of traffic and kind of segregated out the West End of Louisville, which continues to, to have a lot of challenges. And so, you know, a lot of people are talking in a lot of different ways about it. And one of the initiatives that tried to address it, you know, is is something called the Big Table, where a group of community leaders you know, strive to have the biggest potluck in the world. And they hosted, you know, you bring your food and you talk about your food and you come meet people that you wouldn't meet otherwise. And my understanding is that their plan is that they want to try to move it down to the Ninth Street Divide and really start to help to create these connections. Louisville is a nice town. I mean, it's a, it's a city of a million people, but everybody, it's a very small town feel and people tend to know each other. So it's a little easier to navigate than much easier to navigate than in Chicago and New York or San Francisco. So I think we we're kind of uniquely positioned where we can be seen as a metropolitan um, community, but also have a, a, a little bit of Southern hospitality, which which has its shadows. I mean, a, a, the Southern hospitality people will be polite to you, but then you know actually don't want to make needed changes. So you know that's that's part of the shadow of our community is that we're we're very polite and we're civil. And, and sometimes, you know, slower to change things that need to be changed. 
Yeah, I, I know of uh, uh, one person I, do, I, I know inside this work, this space, uh, who talks about the word civil in particular and says civil is a way to keep the status quo. Like, we'll just be civil and then we won't go deeper because we need to be civil and polite to each other. And um, no, Southern hospitality is a beautiful thing, but it, with it comes that idea of tradition, that comes the idea of, of, um, of, you know, this is how we do things and these things are important. And I appreciate the work the mayor is doing that you are doing uh, you know and racism is racism and racist behavior is racist behavior but the systemic racism is all sort of factual and 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 you, if talk about touchy-feely versus factual the idea of I can we can really point to this and we can really walk this through and it doesn't mean anybody's a good or a bad person it just means that these are some structural systemic things we should probably think about how they reverberated and and uh, sometimes that might help people might help open a door for people who otherwise might push back. Uh, I'm wondering, have you found that the work of showing the systemic nature has has helped in that regard? Yeah, that's that's not really been so much my work, but uh, on the systemic piece, though, I mean, I, I did introduce restorative justice to our juvenile courts, and I'm happy to say that um, you know, there's conversations about scaling it all the way to the entire state and making it the default process for juvenile justice in the state of or the Commonwealth of Kentucky. It's not there yet, but it, but there's conversations about it. And it is really a different way to do justice that doesn't kind of divide and ostracize. The concept of restorative justice is if, if you engage in wrongdoing, it's your obligation to set things straight. And it's the system's job to reintegrate you into the community. So we've you know, by introducing that to our community, we've seen some really beautiful healing stories where, you know, there may be an offense that occurs in somebody who's been harmed, but we've been able to bring them together and, and grow community as opposed to divide and label and ostracize and continue to alienate. So it's it's really been, by, by my observation, a system that's made to fit the people and a system that doesn't perpetrate the unintended violence that the systems often do. I mean, our, our local jailer is a, just retired as a gentleman named Mark Bolton. He's done a lot of wonderful things in his role, but he often would talk about the situation that he observed where there was a woman, a single mother who had a job at a fast food restaurant and she got pulled over for a taillight being out and was given a ticket and apparently missed the court date. And then there was a bench warrant that was issued. And then um, after the bench warrant, was issued. She was picked up and put in jail and she didn't have a support network. So she couldn't get herself out of jail and she lost her job and lost her child. You know, so now we, so from a taillight being out, we end up with a child in foster care and her basically out of work and on public assistance in jail for a while, but on public, on public assistance. And that is like the real example he gets is systemic violence. So part of my talking point, um, I'm actually doing a, hopefully we'll have an article in the bar, bar journal about what if lawyers would be healers and what if we gave ourselves the power to be a safety valve when a, when a system doesn't work um, and, and could bring, kind of breathe in restorative justice. Because if there was a restorative justice solution to that, or people felt empowered within the system to, to stop that from happening, um, and we're encouraged to, you know, it would, it would be a better community. It juxtaposed to, I think the first case we ever had with restorative justice, like the er earliest case we had was a grandma who had her um, purse stolen. 
um, by a young man at a restaurant. Her son had gone to get the car and she went to the bathroom and this young man purportedly grabbed the purse and went out to the parking lot and didn't see her and kept it. And it ends up that she had all her Christmas money in there, about $800. And she was a great grandma and a grandma and had about, I don't know, 20 or 30 grandkids and kids. And and some of them had been killed, and she had some trinkets from the children who had been killed that would never be replaced. And so, you know, what happened, she agreed to do one of our very first conferences in restorative justice, and her and her son showed up. And when the mother showed up um, with the offender, um, she started crying because she didn't really know who who had been harmed. Uh, but but what ended up happening was that there needs to be some kind of accountability, and the young man agreed to do um, community service for a number of hours, and he got paired up with someone who helped him. He wanted to go to culinary school, and he got paired up with a mentor, and the, the grandma asked to do a closing session when he completed his accountability, and then when it was done, she told him, now you have another grandma, which is, makes me cry when I think about it. Really beautiful, and 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 we've had so many stories like that from restorative justice where the traditional justice system would have labeled him as an offender. He would have met with a judge who had nothing to do with the situation. And there may have been some accountability that didn't really connect the dots for him that, you know, he had power to harm. He had power to, you know, steal her Christmas money, basically, and take um, objects from her that were really precious, but then he also had power to make things right. And, um, and she, you know, had a graciousness to, um, welcome him back. And, and what we don't realize often with our traditional justice system is that it creates family shame. You know, the mom, if you're, if your child or your loved one is an offender, there's a certain shame associated with that. And in this case, the mom was proud of her son, and um, it was really beautiful. So my my one of my pitches has been that re- restorative justice is really uh, um, kind of an active ingredient if you want to build a, com- a compassionate community. And really, this punitive mindset that we have is really part of the air that we breathe. We we don't we kind of label and ostracize people who make mistakes as opposed to trying to create pathways for accountability and reintegration in the community. And and again, uh, you know, we see civity as a tool in the tool belt of encouraging people to talk across difference and to build those, build that social muscle we talked about. Yeah. That's, thank you so much for sharing that story. That's such a powerful and beautiful story. I was thinking while you were talking, my husband always says, you know, I won't judge someone in their worst moment. Have they made it right? Uh, You know, have they apologized? And, and I love his sentiment, but I think that sort of structural pathway, you know, that kid may have wanted to make it right, but not known how. And the, the fact the system, at least in your case, is working to try to give offenders that pathway to make it right and improve themselves. Because oftentimes offenders, they're coming from a desperate space or a space where they're not necessarily considering the consequences because they're young. Uh, they're not trying to be quote evil or harmful or anything like that. They're just trying to get by. And, and so the idea of trying to figure that space out, I, I would love to see that in, in more cases. So I thank you for sharing that story. Yeah. I mean, we, the model we picked up was from New Zealand and they were so successful that they, closed juvenile detention centers and reduced recidivism by two-thirds. So it's it's not only 
you know, intuitively correct. It also, there's a lot of statistics to show that it works well. Um, it's just not traditionally how we've done justice in our community. We've had this notion that, uh, you know, the state needs to decide guilt. And if you're guilty, you get labeled and ostracized essentially from the rest of the community. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Co-founder Malka Capel says that you always say people are at the center of this work. I think our conversation today has really illuminated that you do feel that way. Yeah. When you say that, talk a little bit about that. I mean, clearly it's, the, you know, when you, in, the, in the example you just gave, the judge had to be a person who was on board with this type of work. The, the lawyers had to be a part of it. The offender and the, and, the, and the victim had to be a part of this. But I'd love to hear from you a little bit about your concept of people being at the center of this type of work. You know, that's a good question. I've never really thought of it that way. I guess my view has always been that, um, I mean, really, you know, governments and laws and all that are really just agreements. They, they're they not really real, except in our minds. Um, and what, you know, what's real is the person in front of you. And, um, you, you know, the, the just the power that I've experienced of of being in safe groups, how healing that is. I mean, I, I've heard from one, I thought it was very insightful comment that one commentator I really like said that, that almost all mental illness is just really some form of loneliness. You know, we're communal species and it's a complete fiction that we're isolated. We are all completely interconnected. Um, and we're interconnected to each other. We're interconnected to the planet and the, in the environment. We get to decide how we're going to do things. I think we, we give more solidity to things that really aren't solid than, than they deserve. I mean, governments, you know, I guess they're government buildings, but they don't, and they do have their own energy system that are very powerful, but, but, but they're of our making. Yes, that is something I think we lose sight of a lot. Everything built up around us, we built. We built the systems. We built the laws. We built the structures. We built the, you know, and, and I do think we as individuals forget that and, and feel like the law is bigger than ourselves. The government is bigger than ourselves, that there's just no way in. And when you break it down the way you just did, it makes it somehow a little bit more tangible or a little bit more reachable because I can certainly deal with the person across the table from me. Uh, it, it feels big to deal with, quote, the court system or, quote, city hall or whatever or, or the city council, but, but I can deal with a person. And that, uh, I mean, it, as I listen to you, it becomes easier somehow to maybe do this work. Yeah, I think, I think so. That, I mean, that, that was Mother Teresa's approach was that she was just wouldn't deal with groups. She would just deal with the individual sitting in front of her. And I, and I think, you know, my, my experience with um, helping to bring some changes is that it's one meeting at a time. It's one person at a time. It can be time consuming, but if you want to bring a change and you think that the, the kind of the brilliance of your argument is going to get people to change instantly, you're going to be sadly mistaken. What's going to get people to change is to show them that there's another way and there may be some things that they haven't seen before and to build trust with them. Some of the leaders of Compassionate Louisville, you probably heard of this, but there's like this Shambhalaya warrior prophecy where um, I guess it's a Tibetan prophecy and I'll probably get this wrong, but the gist of it was that 
it, in later times, the Shambhalaya warriors would take apart the systems from the inside. And, and so, you know, a lot of folks, you know, rightly work on the outside of systems and create d- disruptions where they need to be created. But then there's also a group of people that need to work on the inside of systems to change them from the inside out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm so sorry, I know this might seem a little bit of a non sequitur, but it, for some reason it connects in my head. I'm reading a book now. It's called um, Paris in the Present Tense. But there's a moment where the author writes, it's so much easier for children to make connections because they're so in awe of and impressed by the world instead of worrying about making people in awe of and impressed by them. Yeah. And, and when you, yeah, when you just said those big ideas, and you, we can see it all the time. Children are able to make connections and and just move through stuff and and take it from you know a childlike place into the Shambhalaya warrior concept of of going into that structure and and then dealing with the people. I think that's uh, to me quite powerful. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you though. You know, we're talking about dealing with the person across the table. My understanding is that you actually had. Another very, uh, which can be a fraught and difficult relationship with a child, that you and your son had a really civity moment um, recently. And I, I think, you know, we've talked about systems and governments and business and, and big societal issues. But that relationship between a parent and a child can also be quite difficult sometimes. And so I'm curious if you would be willing to share that that story, because I think that's also powerful. Yeah, I um uh, my oldest son, I've got an older daughter, but my oldest son is a senior in high school, and he's like a lot of teenage boys. He kind of keeps things to himself, and he knows that if I ask a question and he gives too positive a res- of a response, it could lead to follow-up questions, or if he gives too negative of a response, it could lead to follow-up questions. So everything is fine or good, <laughs> and um, and we were, we were going to a cross-country race in North Carolina and driving together, and I thought, my my plan was to make him drive so he couldn't look at his phone, and then I would use some civity prompts to ask him some questions. Nice. And so I did, and we had some we had fantastic conversations. And I was a little sad that I hadn't first introduced it within my family, as opposed to you know introducing it at the workplace in the community. But I guess it's never too late. Right. Um, right. But it was re- really you know wonderful questions and led to some really. Uh, you know, we all need help on, you, you, especially relationships that you have on a regular basis where you see each other all the time. You can kind of get in a rut and 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 being able to have a third party who had developed these prompts, these weren't my questions, and just trying them out with him really was was fantastic. It was um, it, something I always remember and cherish and something that I plan to do more of with, with my other kids. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that story. You've got now civity. Uh, you're engaging it inside the home space, the business space, the government space, the community space. What do you hope to see now as you continue this work in Louisville? We don't really know where it's going to go exactly. There's been some talk about maybe a conversation festival in Louisville where we can bring a lot of people together around conversation. You know, we really hope to kind of create redundancies with it, to have it be a practice both within the public sector, hopefully in the schools and in other places. But, you know, I've been around these types of initiatives enough to know that you can't kind of force them. You got to let them take their natural course. So we want to, you know, be there to help nurture the growth of civity and civity practices as much as we can. There's been a development of something called conversation cards 
through another group and, and we're looking at maybe getting these conversation cards and prompts in um, restaurants and coffee shops. So, you know, the more we talk about civity in these types of questions that it'll become more familiar and that maybe, you know, coffee shops will designate a table that if you want to meet a stranger and have a conversation, they'll have civity like questions or prompts at the table. So we, we want to, um, kind of help it grow however we can. And we want to be supportive of other communities that are trying to do the same. I mean, we, we've seen that when you exchange ideas with other communities, it often helps both of you. So um, we're more than happy to talk to other communities who are trying to seed civity and to learn from them and to share the little bit that we've learned. And and I, that was actually my next question for you is what would you say to other people in communities who desire to do this type of work or to tackle their own uh, challenges that they face in their community? I'd highly encourage that they um, look for authentic openings in their community. Every community is going to be a little different and what what may work in Louisville may work in another community, but it may not. So, you know, kind of work with what you have in front of you and start small and let it you know, let it grow and, and stay consistent with it. I heard somebody say once that we overestimate what we can do in the short term and we underestimate what we can do in the long term. I, I think, you know, if you're going to engage with this, you know, you bring together the people who are, are working in conversation across difference. And, you know, Malka and Civity are very good at not imposing an agenda, but supporting what others are doing. And you allow, you know, this outsider to catalyze your local interest. That's one of the things in Louisville is one way to really bring together local people who are working is to bring somebody from another community in. It's, it tends to be an attractor and it tends to remind us that we have a lot of these skills ourselves and, and we can do it. Thank you. I appreciate that. We're talking here. Hopefully everybody in Louisville will hear this podcast. But what would you say to your fellow uh, Louisville partners, all of the people who live in Louisville, who work there, uh, who call it their space? How can they participate in the bridging efforts that you are moving forward? You know, one way is to get involved in the week of service, the mayor's week of service. Another way is to um, join the folks at the big table. We're going to be looking for other ways, and if anyone wants to get their business or church or whatever involved, they would be more than welcome to contact me directly. Thank you. And when is the Mayor's Week of Service? It's always right before Derby. We do all kinds of stuff the month leading up to Derby, which is always the first Saturday in May. So I think this year the Week of Service is like around the 20th, April 20th. So people have some time to get themselves involved. That's right. Great. Wonderful. Uh, Tom, I want to thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. We've been talking with Tom Williams, attorney with Stoll Keenan and Ogden out of Louisville, Kentucky, a leader of the Compassionate Louisville effort and a board member of the Charter for Compassion. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.